saying the payer is what it's called. Welcome back, everyone, to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk, attorney, healthcare advocate, but most importantly, your host. Many thanks to our national sponsor, Payer Networks, world-class web hosting and domain name registration. Learn more about them by going to payer.com. That's P-A-I-R.com. This program is devoted to the one issue which impacts everybody, and that is healthcare. Even if you're fine today, you won't always be, and you certainly have relatives, friends, families, customers, employees who have health care challenges right now. Our mission is to raise the level of discussion about health care politics and health care policy, and right now we're heard in 13 different states, which is up from one in February, so people are listening. You can hear our past episodes on our website. That's healthcare-politics.com. That's healthcare-politics.com. Our past shows are also available as podcasts on iTunes. And you can watch my 100 Reasons Medicare for All Works for All Americans by going to YouTube and just punching in 100 Reasons Medicare for All Works, and you will see me, and you can listen for 50 minutes, if you can last that long, and you will hear 100 separate reasons why Medicare for All is a great idea. So we're going to be playing a little bit later a, uh, an encore presentation of our interview with Kay Tillo of Unions for Single Payer. She's been at this a really long time, and there are a lot of people who are, have been doing it for years and years, and she's certainly one of the great champions, so we're going to be listening to her. But before we get to that, let's talk about money money. But even before we talk about money, let's talk about the vision thing. And it starts with, if we could, we would. If we could, we would. If we could assure that everyone had access to health care to maintain their quality of life, then we would do that. If we could, we would. If we could, we'd make sure our elders can live in safety and comfort, We'd fully fund the research and development for cures to cancer and Alzheimer's and genetic therapies. And if we could, we would. And if we could, we would invest in treatment and prevention for substance abuse in quality mental health care and dental care and vision care and all of the care and support our veterans need to deal with physical and mental injuries from our wars. If we could, we would. If we could, we would assure that rural hospitals and caregivers have all that they need to assure quality health care delivery to all parts of the United States. You know, if you're on some interstate in the middle of Wyoming and you're in an accident, you'd like to have a pretty good hospital somewhere nearby, not have to be flown to Chicago. So we need to have quality health care across the country, just like we need a quality interstate highway system or energy system. Going beyond health care, if we could, we would assure that every child has a quality education. We'd provide that every student willing to work hard, the, we'd provide them the opportunity for vocational training or college without paralyzing debt when they finish up. If we could, we would have a retirement income program beyond Social Security that recognizes the reality that living past the age of 100 is becoming routine. Uh, many of the people listening to this broadcast are going to live to be 100, 110, 120. And if you retire at 65, 70, or even 75, you're going to spend 40% of your life on retirement, and there has to be a way to pay for that. You know, if we could, we would assist entrepreneurs seeking to start new businesses and start up capital as they need it 
uh, provide that startup capital. We'd invest in roads and bridges and airports and railroads and dams and locks and schools. We'd clean up Superfund sites. We'd, we'd rebuild the middle class. And, and on the defense side, we'd work on cybersecurity and we'd develop that missile shield so we can deal with North Korea and, and all of that. If we could, we would. And when we come back from break, we're going to talk about the fact that we can. We can. So stick with us. This is Steve Larchuk, Healthcare Politics. The most recent Census Bureau estimates for Wisconsin say of more than 6,000 homeless people, at least 500 are veterans. Often, returning veterans face big challenges in acclimating to civilian life, finding jobs, and places to live. Many suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and may have physical challenges as well. Dan Stein, who runs Second Harvest Food Bank of Southern Wisconsin, calls the figures on veterans and hunger disturbing. A national study done by Feeding America called Hunger in America that all the 200 food banks or so contributed working in their respective areas. It showed that 14% of all the families we serve had a veteran in that household. In Wisconsin, that figure jumps to 19%, including 4% of food bank clients who are currently serving in the military. Stein says hunger can afflict anyone and has a significant impact on health as people struggling to make ends meet often rely on cheap and unhealthy food. I'm Tim Morrissey reporting. Welcome back, everyone, to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. And before the break, we talked about if we could, we would. If we could, we would do incredible things in this country. Things like fixing health care, education, caring for our elders, research and development of cures, cybersecurity, infrastructure, uh, improving uh, the ability of our armed forces, our Navy, the Army. Everybody can make their own list. If we could, we would, and you'd fill in the blank. So the real question is, so why don't we? If we could, we would, then why don't we? And if you ask the typical politician, and this includes politicians who are generally so-called liberals, even uh, President Obama, they would say, we have to balance the budget. And they will they, you know, pound themselves on the chest and they'll say, we're fiscally conservative, you know, we don't want the deficit to increase and all of that. And they'll say that the government is already doing too much and doing more than, than it can afford. And then often they'll say that, you know, the United States is just like a business we, and, or a family. And you, you have to balance what you take in with what you shell out. And they'll just rail and wring their hands and they'll say, oh, look at this national debt. And then they'll, with, with great sanctimonious zeal, they'll say, we're burdening future generations with our debt. And they'll say that the only path forward is to balance the budget, and there are only two ways to do that. They'll say, we can raise taxes or cut spending. They'll say, those are the only two ways. And, of course, the budget hawks refuse to even consider raising taxes. And they'll say, the taxes are too high already. You know, we can't, you know, the rich don't have enough money. We have to make sure that they have more money uh, because, you know, the rich are the, the, the true engine of our economy. Of course, that's nonsense, but that's what they'll say. They'll also complain bitterly 
the conservatives, the fiscal hots, hawks, they'll say, we're borrowing too much money. We can't do that. We're, we're piling debt on debt. Uh, to them, they want reform. Now, reform in Washington means cut. They should just say cut, but you know, reform sounds so much better. So when they say they want to reform Medicaid, what they mean is they want to cut Medicaid. And, of course, when you cut Medicaid, it's not like some phantom, non-important thing. There are people on the other end of that cut. They say they want to reform food stamps, supplemental nutrition. They want to cut food stamps. They want to reform it. They never think it through. Why do, they, why do people use food stamps? It's not because, you know, they, they eat just for the fun of it. You know, they... They need food. Uh, they want to cut Medicaid, things like that. So, of course, when you, when you have one group saying that uh, we're, we refuse to raise taxes and you have another group which says we're already cutting entitlements too much, the people need the money, then nothing happens. Nothing's been happening. We've been tied up in these weeds for generations. And then you, you sit and you look at the TV set and you shake your head and you ask yourself in the back of your head, Gee, if we could, we would. And you fill in the gap. And what's been missing from this discussion has been a true understanding of the fundamentals about the monetary policy and fiscal policy. And if you know the difference, you're, you're really a wonk because most people don't know the difference. Monetary policy is pretty much what the Federal Reserve does, and it plays with interest rates up and down. It's really just part of the banking system. It's not part of the government. It's, it's basically the banking system. Fiscal policy is what Congress does in terms of spending the money on, on us, on people. And the problem is that too many folks in Congress, and even our past president, certainly our current president, miss the point that the United States is not the family grocery down at the end of the block. We're not a small business. We're not a family that has to balance its budget. We are a sovereign nation. And the wealth of our nation is represented by the value of not just the land we live on and the minerals that are contained there. It's what we've spent 350 years building. It's the roads. It's the buildings. It's the bridges. It's the railroads. It's also the people. Within each of us is an investment an investment in our education, an investment in our experiences. And that has value. There's tremendous value in this country. And I'm not talking about the quarters and, and dollar bills we carry around in our wallets or our purses. I'm talking about the value of everything that we have around us. So when we talk about money, the theory of money is that it represents a means to trade the value of things that you really can't carry around in your pocket or your wallet or your purse. However, and so we all know that, you know, you, you, you go to the ATM machine, you pull out some cash, you can go buy a hamburger with it. That's all simple enough. But of course, we, we all know this, right? If you took all the dollar bills and all the coins that exist, it wouldn't be a tiny fraction of the so-called money that's in circulation. Most of the money that's in circulation is imaginary. It's digital. It's little checks on a balance sheet. And in the old days, it was ink. And now it's not even ink. 
It's, it's not even paper. It's all digital. When the Federal Reserve decides that it wants to reduce its balance sheet, you've been hearing that in the news, that it's a $4 trillion balance sheet, and we need to reduce it. Well, first of all, they don't explain why they need to reduce it or what that means to you and me. But there won't be somebody putting a wheelbarrow or a, or a tractor trailer up to the back of the Federal Reserve to take $4 trillion out. It's going to be digital. It's going to be a few keystrokes on a, on a computer board. So when we're talking about money, you need to remember money isn't gold or silver or even pieces of paper. It's, it's trust. It's, it's the concept that I will respect your $20 bill if you'll respect my $20 bill. And, that, and the real trick is to have balance in the economy. There has to be enough money circulating that people in the real economy can balance their desire to trade goods and services and services and goods. And the biggest problem we have is that we're out of balance. We've been going out of balance since about 1980. Since 1980, if you take a look at the Commerce Department website, you'll see that we have had an $18 trillion trade deficit. Now, that means $18 trillion has gone overseas for oil or toy ducks or whatever we've been buying from other countries, and there hasn't been an equivalent amount of purchasing by them of our goods. Now, we all know that, and we know it costs us jobs and things like that, but it also means we're hemorrhaging money. $18 trillion adjusted for inflation in goods and services net trade deficit. The other deficit we have is so much money has been spiraling up to the top 1%. And if you see the statistics, we have this terrible situation of wealth disparity in this country, and it's getting worse every year. And if you, if you aggregate the trade deficit with the amount of money that's spun up to the top 1%, where it just is basically stashed in their mattress, it's not being spent to create jobs. It's not being spent to start new factories. That's all just a, an a illusion. It's not doing that. We have really about 30 to $40 trillion that has just been hemorrhaging out of this economy. And so when you say, if we could, we would, we can, because what we've let happen is all of that money has essentially left the working economy. It needs to be replaced. And because we're a sovereign country, we have the right to do that. Our country has the right to decide how much currency, how much money, for lack of another word, we're going to have in circulation. And until we figure that out and stop pretending like we can't do it and whining that, oh, my God, we'll have terrible inflation, in fact, we won't. And, if, and I can line up economists from here to the moon that will tell you that that wouldn't create massive inflation. Until we're ready to actually think that way, we're not going to get anywhere. So... That may have some of you driving off the road. I understand. This is something a little bit out of the box. But if we could, if we could, if we could. All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to have Kay Tillo from Unions for a Single-Payer Health System. Thank you so much. This is Steve Larchuk, Healthcare Politics. self-described geniuses of Wall Street are being stupid again. 
In 2007, their stupid schemes and frauds crashed our economy, destroying middle-class jobs, wealth, and opportunities. Far from being punished, however, the scoff laws were bailed out by their Washington enablers. So the moral lesson they learned was clear. Stupid pays. Go stupid. Sure enough, here they come again. Rather than investing America's capital in real businesses to generate grassroots jobs and shared prosperity, Wall Street is siphoning billions of investment dollars into speculative nonsense, such as bundles of high-risk subprime auto loans. It works like this. Car dealers, eager to goose up sales, hawk new vehicles to lower-income people, offering quick loan approval even to those with poor credit ratings. Banks, eager to hook more people on monthly car payments, okay these subprime car loans without verifying the buyer's ability to pay. Then, a Wall Street bank's investment house buys up thousands of these iffy individual loans, bundles them into multi-million dollar debt securities, and sells them to wealthy global speculators. Last year alone, banks sold $26 billion worth of these explosive bundles of car loans. This is a gaseous repeat of Wall Street's subprime mortgage bubble that burst a decade ago. The scam generates easy money at the start for speculators and banksters, but as more and more low-income buyers are unable to make their car payments, defaults build up, and the whole financial bubble pops. This is Jim Hightower saying, wasting America's much-needed investment capital on a scheme that intentionally puts people in cars they can't afford with loans they can't repay is not only stupid, but immoral, and it's killing our economy. Why are we letting elite Wall Street loan sharks do this to us? I wasn't prepared to be a caregiver to mom. I had no idea how hard it would be and what I would need to know. Things I never thought of, like how to improve her mood and ways for me to stay positive. Luckily, I found the Caregiving Resource Center from AARP. It had articles about the basics, but also information about the hurdles I was facing. Caregiving Resource Center at aarp.org caregiving. Articles, tips, and tools to help you both care for your loved one and care for yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. What if I told you that a tornado was going to happen tomorrow right where you live? that it would touch down at exactly 3.17 p.m. and I told you the exact path it would take, you would of course prepare. You would talk with your loved ones and you'd make a plan today. It's true, I can't tell you a tornado will strike tomorrow, but shouldn't you have a plan anyway? Go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait, communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Single payer is what it's called. Bottom line is Welcome to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk, healthcare advocate and lawyer, and today hosting the show with a terrific guest, Kay Tillo from Kentucky. Uh, Kay, are you there? I am. All right, wonderful. Today's show, we're going to uh, discuss uh, her, her effort, Kay's effort, and the, the people that she works with to try and build a national uh, support for the concept of single payers. So, Kay, let's start by talking a little bit about you. Introduce yourself to the listeners. Uh, who are you and where do you live? Uh, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm a, a lifetime union activist. And uh, in recent years, I have been working to build grassroots union support for H.R. 676, that's Congressman John Conyers' 
expanded and improved Medicare for All, which is national single-payer legislation. Why do you think that that's worth your support? In other words, what what is it about this that has attracted your interest, and why do you think it's the way that the country should go? Well, I worked in uh, mostly in organizing in health care unions, so I kind of was around a lot of the health care issues within our country and became aware that we are the only, only industrialized nation that does not have a system of health care that provides care for everyone, and that, in fact, we spend about double per capita uh, on health care more than the countries, and we have worse outcomes, and that we are lagging behind in terms of just taking care of our people. And it's just really a tragedy and a crime that we don't change our health care system so that we're able to care for all of the people, as we have the ability to do. Why do you suppose that is? You've been at this a while, and I'm sure you've heard all the pushback. And you live in Kentucky, which is a pretty conservative state. What are you hearing from people that don't think we should have a single-payer national health care system? What are they saying to you? Well, we basically hear that people, we find agreement uh, where we go and where we speak and where we talk. There is confusion, um, particularly about the Affordable Care Act, which has uh, garnered strong opponents and <laughs> strong proponents. Uh, but we find that when we talk with people, there is in general agreement. We find very, very few people who don't think that this is the right thing to do. And um, what we find is the problem is that we are unable to uh, translate broad people's support, democratic support, into policy, that there are barriers to making that politically feasible. And so what we are trying to do is build up the support from the grassroots and the understanding, the understanding about why we have to remove the for-profit insurance industry from our system, because it's the problem that's making it so expensive and causing denials of care and uh, adding so much administrative waste. Well, let's just uh, take the devil's advocate point of view here. A lot of people would say that the insurance companies are vital to the system because they help keep the prices of health care down. Do you believe that? Do you agree with that? No, it's, it's basically it's just the opposite. Um, they intrude into the system and, of course, their, their motive for being in the system is that they seek to make profit. And in the seeking to make profit, they do a whole number of things. One is to try to deny care or to cut back on, you know, what the physician can diagnose or what treatment can be put there. Uh, they add this massive administrative waste. And so they make it much more expensive uh, than it needs to be. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. We spend about over $3 trillion a year, and uh, we spend very close to 10000 per person. And the uh, OECD countries, that's the um, 
Organization for Economic Development. I think it's mostly the wealthy countries. They spend, uh, on average, about half of that, about 5000 per person. And their outcomes are better in uh, infant mortality, particularly maternal mortality. We do such a terrible job of taking care of our moms. And um, they have a higher life expectancy, and they have uh, everyone covered. And there's no reason why we can't do it, too. And the difference is they don't have the private insurers running their system, and we do. And they are therefore the, the problem and what we have to remove and what the legislation we propose would do is to remove them from the system and publicly fund health care in a way that we could uh, bend the cost curve, you know, bring it to where it doesn't continue to escalate and make it affordable for people so that everybody is covered. You're going to be with us for the next uh, 20 minutes or so, so uh, this question is not uh, to suggest that we're winding up. We're just getting started, but I want you to tell people about your website and the, pe- and the support that you're getting from unions. Where, where can they find your website? Our website is unionsforsinglepayer.org, O-R-G, and uh, it is a, not a very complex website. It's just a, a low-scale operation, but we do list every union that has taken a position for H.R. 676. And at this point, it's 628. And those are everything from union locals to central labor councils. Central labor councils are normally a city-based region of of unions from different internationals. And we have so far gotten 44 uh, state AFL-CIO bodies to endorse the bill as well. So the support is growing, and um, we encourage any other unions to take a look at the legislation and to join us in making this push. Now, is there a difference between uh, what Bernie Sanders was pushing with his uh, Medicare for All program and this H.R. 676, uh, Representative Conyers' bill? Um, Well, Bernie did a wonderful job of popularizing single-payer and explaining it as a Medicare for All bill. So that was certainly a big contribution to the movement, helping people to understand that, you know, it wasn't just the Affordable Care Act or nothing that we could move forward to a system that did more and did it better. Um, he does not currently have a piece of legislation. So, um, I, you know, he has he explained in his campaign kind of an outline of what he wanted, and I think that that was good. He hasn't had legislation on it since the uh, last Congress. We're going to be taking a break here shortly, and when we return with Kay Tillo, we're going to be talking a little bit about what's happening in Kentucky, which is where she lives. I want to hear a little bit about the pushback that she's getting on a very local uh, basis. So, uh, Kay, please stand by. And to the listeners, this is Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. Please join us after the break. Thank you very much. One of the dirty little secret all over this land. 
a free market monster with invisible hands. You're listening to Win Workers Independent News, a production of Diversified Media Enterprises. I'm Doug Cunningham. The emotions were raw as pro-UAW Nissan workers lamented their union election loss here in Canton, Mississippi. But beneath the anguish created by Nissan's illegal fear and intimidation campaign triumph was a fierce determination by these workers to keep their eyes on the union prize. Antonio Hoover is a 13-year Nissan worker. Many of us are on the verge of divorce. Many of us are on the verge of losing in our families because of me, son. But you put this dog on the campaign and try to make us look bad, but you all are the one that did us like this. But I'm going to tell you something, Steve Marshall. Six months, baby. Six months. You don't clean this mess up. We will be back. We will be back. We will be back. We are the one that make the profit for Nissan. We are the one. UAW, strong, baby. UAW. Nissan worker and UAW supporter Betty Jones. We didn't do no dirty tricks. We didn't tell no lies. We did not intimidate anybody. We didn't. So when we walk in that paint on Monday morning, you hold your head up. Because I'm going to walk in there because God gave me the courage. gave me the boldness. Nissan ain't gave y'all nothing. When you walk in there on Monday morning, they paying you for your labor. They don't care anything about you. We care about the people. We care about safety. We care about our benefits. And we still going to care about those things. Right. Let me tell you something. Our co-workers, they're going to find out how Nissan really is. Yeah. When they go in there Monday morning, cut your hair off. When you go in there Monday morning, they're going to turn that line speed up on you. I want you to think about, thank Nissan then. Let me tell you something. They're going to show that you coast. They're going to show them. We're showing ours tonight. The UAW has filed unfair labor practice charges against Nissan, and if Nissan is found guilty, there could be a repeat vote. Nissan worker Isaac Jackson. A lot of times you don't get off the plantation in Mississippi on the first track. Sometimes you have to wait to the midnight hour and slip off and leave your clothes in your shoes but when you cross the Mason-Dixon line, y'all is free then, you feel me? So don't you quit, don't hold your head down. When you walk in that plant on Monday morning, lift your head high, hold your shoulders back, and let everybody know you've been in a good fight. And this is a good fight, and I'm glad I was in it. I'm glad that I was in it, and guess what? It ain't over yet. It ain't over yet. Reporting from Canton, Mississippi, Doug Cunningham, Workers Independent News. You've been listening to Win Workers Independent News. For more information, visit workersindependentnews.com. This is Mario Andretti. You know me as a race car driver, but I'm also a Meals on Wheels volunteer. I've raced against the sport's biggest personalities, but I've never met more vibrant, amazing people than the seniors served by Meals on Wheels. You can make a difference by dropping off a hot meal and saying a quick hello. So, America, let's do lunch. Volunteer your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Imagine if I told you that an earthquake was going to hit tomorrow right where you live. That it would be 6.5 in magnitude with aftershocks occurring twice 25 minutes apart. You'd no doubt talk with your loved ones, and you'd make a plan today. It's true, I can't tell you an earthquake will happen tomorrow, but what if it does? Shouldn't you have a plan? 
Go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait. Communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Single payer is what it's called. Bottom line is Medicare. Welcome back to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk, and today I have with me Kay Tillo, one of the advocates for single payer health care and the curator of a website where she's collecting the endorsements of the single payer concept and specific legislation pending in Congress, H.R. 676 to be precise. And Kay, I wanted to talk a little bit about your hometown and your state. As a Kentuckian, your Congress or your senators are somewhat famous. You have Mitch McConnell, who is the majority leader of the Senate, and you have Rand Paul, who is sort of one of a kind. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about what are you hearing in Kentucky about the the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. What are people saying to you? Well, um, to me personally, I, um, you know, I, we go out and speak with a lot of groups uh, about single payer, and we don't hear a clamor for the repeal. Um, there is a lot of confusion uh, in Kentucky um, because it's uh, the bill has worked both ways to help a lot of people and then to hurt some people and to not solve many of the problems that we continue to have. So that's a part of the problem is that, for instance, in Kentucky, Medicaid, the Medicaid expansion was implemented because at the time we had a Democratic governor who worked hard to get all of the benefit that he could out of it. And so 440 thousand people signed up for the Medicaid expansion in Kentucky. That's about 10% of the population. And people are eligible for that only if they're not above 138% of poverty, which uh, says something about the economic condition of our state. Uh, So a lot of people got health care for the first time. Uh, The exchanges, you know, where people uh, could purchase health care were less successful. I think maybe only about 70 or 80,000 uh, purchased individual insurance on that exchange. But then for the people who are a little bit above that or the people who have insurance through employers or who have to purchase it on the, uh, on the exchange, the cost has gone up tremendously. The deductibles have gone up to the point that we have the situation that people have coverage but cannot afford their care, which is a total contradiction in what insurance is supposed to be about. So the co-pays and deductibles have risen, and that causes a crisis, which I think is the reason why we have the clamor, you know, don't repeal it, and also the clamor to repeal it, because it has done good things, and it has done things that didn't solve anything or that hurt. So it's not a situation where it's fixed, and that's really why we're supporting the national single-payer legislation to not lose the coverage that we've gained through the ACA, but to cover those people better. Quite frankly, anyone on Medicaid, it's a poor program for poor people, and it pays the physicians and the doctors less, which causes a problem. It's like an undervaluing of those lives 
when you have a two-tiered system with some people's care worth less. So we have to move it forward and save the gains that we've made, not throw those people off, but pass legislation that would fix that part as well as the others and do away with these deductibles and co-pays. You know, the, the deductibles and co-pays keep growing under the ACA. The deductibles, the part that the patient has to pay before the insurance clicks in. We have many, many people with a deductible of five and $6,000. So it's a, such a barrier to being able to go and to get the care that you need. People don't have that kind of money lying around. Um, so we have people who love the ACA and people who hate the ACA. Now Kentucky has a new governor who is uh, very, very much to the right, and uh, he wants to get a waiver to move our Medicaid expansion backward, or else he says he will dissolve it. He will uh, do away with the Medicaid expansion. So there's a fight in the state <laughs> to stop him from being able to do that. And uh, so we're really working in counties all across Kentucky to try to work to save what we have and to move it to a national single-payer system. President Trump ran uh, enthusiastically in support of coal miners. And, of course, Kentucky has a lot of coal miners. Yet, if the Congress repeals the Affordable Care Act, uh, they will actually suffer. Uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about that from your Kentuckian point of view? Well, it, it will be bad if, uh, if they repeal the ACA without moving it to single payer. Uh, they and many others will suffer. But we already have a problem that uh, many of the health care funds that the coal miners union negotiated are going uh, under. And unless action is taken on a bill that they support, or on single-payer. We have 22,000 coal miners and their families who are losing their health care coverage very soon, and that's particularly tragic because the jobs that they did caused them to have lung diseases and many other things connected with working within that industry, and they really, really, uh, it will be tragic for those lives if we don't get something done to fix this and make sure they get the care that they were promised uh, in 46 as, as the ending of the strike when Truman said that uh, the coal miners and their families would be covered for life. Well, we're going to have an interesting year here in 2017. Uh, just a personal note, both of my grandfathers were coal miners in western Pennsylvania. One died in a coal mining accident and the other died from black lung. So for anybody that thinks coal mining is a, an easy occupation, they, they don't know anything about it at all. And it's particularly ironic that the president campaigned for those uh, coal miner votes, and yet uh, with all the things he's said and all the things he's tweeted, I have yet to see him actually stand up for coal miners who are paying the physical and health care price and instead, uh, he is just sitting by waiting for Congress to, frankly, gut the support systems that we've promised uh, for years, for generations, in fact. 
Okay, when we come back in the next segment, we're going to be talking about uh, sort of a more personal approach that all of us can take to try and advocate for health care reform. But before we take that break, I wanted to go back to the question of what kind of objections are you hearing? I mean, we, to you and certainly to me, this seems so obvious that we should go to a single-payer system. But what, what are you hearing? When, what's the most common pushback you get when people say they're against it? What, what are they saying to you? Uh, I would guess the most common one is that with this Congress, this isn't feasible. What are you talking about? And um, kind of you need to get your demands in line with what is possible within this political system as it exists now. So the principal pushback you get is we like the idea, but it's just never going to happen. So why are we wasting our time talking about it? Right, and then kind of the idea that if we lowered demand. So I have a friend who says, well, I agree with you, but, you know, I'm, I work with the disabled and we just have to stop the block grant that will hurt the disabled. And so that's the only issue I'm going to push on because that's the crisis that we're facing and that's, you know, a, a, a more possible for us to do than to do the whole thing. All right. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue our very interesting conversation with Kay Tillo. My name is Steve Larchuk, and you're listening to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. Come back in a few minutes and join us. We'll wrap up the show shortly with some interesting final thoughts. Thank you very much. Well, there's a dirty little secret all over this land. A free market monster with invisible hands. You like working with your hands. You're good at putting things together, and you take pride in your work. Hey, with your skills and drive, you could have a satisfying, stable career as a sheet metal worker. Sheet Metal Local 12 is accepting apprentices right now. Earn while you learn to work with a product that's vital to technology and manufacturing in nearly every industry known to man. Apply today or learn more online at smlocal12.org. That's smlocal12.org. Your future begins right now. SMLocal12.org. Adopt US Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. You're bringing your daughter to her favorite pop star's concert. Do you A, wear earplugs? Isn't this fun, Dad? I have a soft pretzel. B, remember the moment with matching concert t shirts. That's going to be 180 bucks. Or we can just take a photo. C. Show her how you used to do concerts. We're going crowd surfing! I can't! It's too heavy! Oh my god! Ah. Or D. Just roll with it. Woo! Justin! Look at us! We're over here! Justin! Justin! OMG! He just looked... I love you, Justin! I love you! When it comes to parenting, there are no perfect answers. But that's okay, because you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit adoptuskids.org slash AL. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. Hope you enjoyed your meal. And I just want to say, he's lucky to have a brother like you. Lucky? Caring for my brother is far from easy. But he's a part of me, like my arms and legs, so I'll be his. No time for tired. Nothing can disable this love. He needs me, but I'm the lucky one, even though I need help now and then. 
If you're caring for a loved one, visit aarp.org/caregiving for care guides and community support for your strength. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. And you are listening to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk, and I have Kay Tillo of Kentucky with us today. We're talking about single-payer advocacy and what she's doing with unions and others to generate grassroots support. Uh, Many thanks to our national sponsor, Pair Networks, world-class web hosting and domain registration services. You can learn more about Pair Networks by going to their website. That's Pair, P-A-I-R, dot com. And thank you so much for their support. They help make this show possible. Uh, Kay, I wanted to... uh, get a little personal here, not too personal, but personal in the sense of, of how this whole situation is affecting people. And when I say this whole situation, we went from having problems with the healthcare system in the United States uh, to the point where the Affordable Care Act and Patient Protection Act was actually uh, able to pass. Not a single Republican supported it. And they have done nothing but try and repeal it ever since. And here we are in 2017 with uh, various Republican ideas about what to do. And I'm curious, do you, do you see anything you like about any of the suggestions that the Republicans are, are floating? Is there anything there that you, you think might be a good improvement on the <laughs> Affordable Care Act system? Well, you know, Trump said we're going to have a terrific plan and we're going to have everybody covered. So that sounds good. But apart from that generality, all of the specifics that have been proposed uh, by, uh, well, Rand Paul has a bill and Tom Price, the the new cabinet member, and uh, Susan Collins, a whole number of people. There are many proposals. There's no agreement among the Republicans, but all of none of those things would work to make it better. All of them would make it worse. Uh, they are proposing selling across state lines, which basically I assume they mean that they want to get out from under uh, the state insurance commissioners, which is the only regulation that we have. And they want to loosen up the essential health benefits, you know, the requirements that there be fairly comprehensive coverage. Well, that doesn't help. I mean, that may make it cheaper for a few people, but if they really get sick, the coverage they need is not going to be there. So, and they 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 say that, you know, we need to get more competition, you know, all of those kinds of things. None of those things have a, an ounce of possibility of solving the basic problem. Uh, the basic problem is health care is too expensive, uh, for people, and uh, the insurance company's uh, position within our health care system dominating it is what makes it that way, and we need to publicly fund it. Uh, the cost now is about, uh, I would say, $16,000 or so. I think that's what uh, an employer must pay to do a family coverage, and uh, that's that's terrible. That's beyond what minimum wage is. So <laughs> it means that there's more must be spent on health care um, than on the wages, or so much that it's beyond people's ability to pay. So we really have to transform it and make it so that we publicly fund it, 
so that there's no cost at the point of service. Um, you know, the insurance company view is that when someone uses their health care, that needs to be controlled, that they're using too much health care, and that's what makes it expensive. And that's not the way it should be. I mean, what's making it expensive is that we're not getting people in to get care early enough. Um, we're not getting the care that we need. You know, we're not doing all the preventive care that we need to do. And um, so <laughs> it's um, none of the uh, Republican proposals work. And, in fact, the Affordable Care Act is a Republican proposal. It was hatched by the Heritage Foundation, and it's been uh, proposed. It is the free market, pro-free enterprise uh, proposal. And why all of the Democrats voted for it and the Republicans voted no makes no sense. It's their proposal. And it's worked as well as it could, and now we have to move on to something better. Well, it, it always is a mystery uh, why the Republicans fought so hard against uh, providing health care access to people. The Republicans seem, as a general rule, to think that any insurance policy is as good as any other insurance policy. And I could sell you a health insurance policy for $10 a month. It wouldn't cover anything, but you could say you had insurance. And that's one of the, the real deceptive things that uh, we hear over and over again from the Republican side. Uh, they also talk about, we want you to have access to health insurance. Well, theoretically, I have access to a Maserati automobile uh, if I have enough money to buy it. And so saying, well, you're, you have access, what's your beef, uh, doesn't advance the ball at all. One of the things that's so important about what we're seeing in terms of these town hall meetings and the outcry is that average people are actually uh, calling out the Republicans and saying, Let's be specific. What is it that you want to do? Don't, don't just rail against the, the flaws in the Affordable Care Act. We all agree it needs to be better. But what are you going to do? And very often we hear uh, specific stories that are heartbreaking, and I think you're seeing that as well. But a, a related problem is the opioid epidemic in the United States. And I read recently that in your hometown you had a horrible 24-hour, 48-hour period where there were massive overdoses. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, I've read the news stories. I'm not certain that I understand all of it. It seems to be um, there's some speculation that this, there's a, a drug called fentanyl that has been mixed with uh, the uh, other opiates and that is particularly strong and is causing uh, the deaths. Uh, I don't know deeply about it. I do know that we need more uh, facilities to treat addiction. We need to thoroughly cover uh, mental health and addiction and, and do our best as a society to reach out on it. I think that the addiction and the suicides and all of those things uh, relate to dysfunction within the society. You know, it's it's harder and harder to get a good job. It's hard to uh, 
get a good education. It's so very expensive to go to school, and we're having a lot of difficulties that make life and society not work as smoothly and as well as it should for our people. I don't have uh, insight beyond that other than it's really tragic and we need to treat the addiction and, of course, stop the drugs from being sold. Well, I think you put your finger on it. Uh, we have a, a society that is just despondent. Uh, people are not seeing opportunities. Uh, we keep telling kids that if you go to college and you work hard and you get a degree, that you'll have a good job waiting for you. That's certainly not the case, uh, assuming they can get a job at all. It frequently pays no more than the same position did 20 or 30 years ago. And you have all these uh, problems with reduced uh, benefits. Uh, it's a, we have an unhappy population, and for good reason. So I, I call it the anesthetization of the United States. People are, whether it's uh, something as mild as marijuana or something as bad as uh, opioids, they just are frustrated to the point where that seems to be as sensible a thing to do as any other. But uh, with that parting comment, I just wanted to thank you so much, Kay. Uh, tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about the work you're doing and what they can do to help things move forward. Um, well, the website is unionsforsinglepayer.org, and uh, you can see the unions that have endorsed the bill. Uh, you can also get a list of the cities and counties that have endorsed H.R. 676. So... If you're not in a union, you might want to try to get your city council or your state legislature, your county governing body, to endorse the bill. Uh, we need people to take the idea that there's a solution and this is it, and this will work for us in order to cover all of our people. And um, that list is also there. So everybody can do something because it's a part of building up the aspiration and the hope that we really can fix it and then insisting that our political system do what it needs to do to cure this disease. Thank you so much, Kay Tillow from the great state of Kentucky and Unions for Single Payer. We will be back after a few minutes with some final thoughts. Thank you so much and thank you, Kay. Paying seven times more than anywhere What if I told you that a tornado was going to happen tomorrow, right where you live? That it would touch down at exactly 3.17 p.m. and I told you the exact path it would take. You would, of course, prepare. You would talk with your loved ones and you'd make a plan today. It's true, I can't tell you a tornado will strike tomorrow, but shouldn't you have a plan anyway? Go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait. Communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. What are all the things you witness online in a day? Cats playing piano, selfies on your feed, your friend's picture being turned into a nasty meme that's been shared 50 times, 51, 52. When someone's being bullied online, it's hard to know what to do. Now you can speak up with the witness emoji. It looks like an eye in a speech bubble, and it's in the symbol section near the clocks in your phone. You'll let the world know it isn't cool, and you'll let your friend know you care. Learn more at eyewitnessbullying.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. This is Mario Andretti. You know me as a race car driver. 
but I'm also a Meals on Wheels volunteer. I've raced against the sport's biggest personalities, but I've never met more vibrant, amazing people than the seniors served by Meals on Wheels. You can make a difference by dropping off a hot meal and saying a quick hello. So America, let's do lunch. Volunteer your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. And you are back with Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk. And we have just had a wonderful chat with Kay Tillow, who is with Unions for Single Payer. Uh, Over 600 unions around the country have supported the concept of single payer. And that uh, is uh, trending up, as you can imagine. We are making great progress here with the show, and I thank all of the listeners who are joining us, and thank you for the emails of support we're getting. If you'd like to learn more about what we're up to and and what we're trying to do here at Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk, please go to our website. That is healthcare-politics.com. Healthcare, all one word, healthcare-politics.com. And I'd like to thank Mike Stout, who has graciously given us permission to use the music that you hear during the show. Thank you very much to TUE Media, which is making uh, all of the engineering possible and hosting the show here. Thank you to Ann McGeary, our producer, who's helping us line up our guests and also the conscience of the show in many ways. Thanks to her. Thanks to Pair Networks world-class web hosting, and domain registration. They are our national sponsor. You can learn more about them at pair, P-A-I-R dot com. Next week's show will be focusing on uh, exactly what are we doing with the elder population. And so uh, I hope you'll join us at that time. This is Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk, and we look forward to you joining us next week. Thank you so much. Single payer is what it's called.